word now. Minister to our hearts as we, as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, as you note the outline there, uh, the theme of the book of Matthew is Christ the King, and there's various evidences that he is the promised Messiah, whether it's the legal right to the throne, the moral right to the throne, the judicial right to the throne, the prophetical right to the throne. All the lines of evidence line up with the Lord Jesus Christ being the true Messiah. Well, then the issue becomes, okay, what is the nation of Israel going to do with this body of evidence that is presented before them in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Well, we find as we come to Matthew chapter 11 and 12, the verdict of the nation is that they rejected their king. They rejected Jesus as the true Messiah. As I say, Jesus was born king of the Jews. That is, he came as the Jewish Messiah. And the Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament, Old Testament, would be both God and man in one person. Uh, he would be both deliverer and ruler over God's people. And the Messiah would come to bring in the kingdom and rule forever. Now, the issue for the Jewish religious leaders, the real sticking issue for them, was who Jesus claimed to be as Lord God. They had a real problem with this. They had a real problem with his lordship claim. When he claimed to be able to forgive sins, you see, they considered this to be blasphemy because they realized that ultimately it is God alone who can forgive sin. But they were wrong in the charge of blasphemy because, in fact, Jesus is Lord God. When Jesus claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, the Pharisees rightly saw this as a claim to be Lord God. For in fact, God alone is master over the Sabbath. Jesus proceeded to demonstrate that he was Lord over the Sabbath by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, saying, quote, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Well, the response of the Pharisees to him doing good on the Sabbath was to go out and plot how they might destroy him. And that's where we pick the story up, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. With the hostility and the opposition of the religious leaders rising to a murderous level, Jesus withdrew from this area in the region of Capernaum. And as he did so, massive crowds followed him. And once again, we see the emphasis that he healed them all. Now, if you can heal everyone, uh, you're not going to lack for a crowd. Uh, People love healing, and we understand that, right? That's understandably so. However, at this point, the multitudes, while fascinated by his healing power, still did not really understand who he was. And that's the main point. They missed the main point. Jesus was not merely healing for the sake of healing people, for healing's sake. Rather, his healing ministry was a sign ministry, pointing to the reality of who he was as the divine human Messiah who had authority to do kingdom miracles, showing that he was indeed the promised Messiah offering the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. But here's the question. Why did Jesus withdraw 
from the area. I mean, the Pharisees go out and they, they plot to, to destroy him, and he withdraws. Why? Well, he was not afraid of their plotting, but he did realize he was on God's timetable, and it was not yet time for him to die. When opposition grew intense, Christ's pattern often was to withdraw from that context of hostility. And all the way through his ministry, we see him very conscious of being on God's timetable. For example, in John 7, 8, Jesus says to his brothers, You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus was in sync with the Father's timetable every step of the way. Jesus, as the God-man, during his earthly ministry, was here as God's servant. He set aside the independent use of his divine attributes, doing only the will of God in his role of humility. Well, as God, he could have wiped any and all opposition out at any point. But yet the will of God was that in humility as a man, he endures satanic and human opposition in keeping with the purposes and sovereign will of God. Well, as a human, this meant at certain points avoiding the heightened tensions with the religious leaders. However, when the time was right, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, and there he would be crucified. But it was not yet that time. John Philip says the time to die, however, was not yet. Not there in Capernaum, and not by the Pharisees' method of stoning. Well, God is sovereign over the days of our lives, and yet as Jesus instructed, his children sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In Matthew 10, 23, he instructed the apostles, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Jesus is here modeling that reality. Uh, there's a time to run and a time not to run, a time to flee and a time not to flee. When he was soundly rejected by the religious leaders, he moved to another area. And as Jesus withdrew from there, the religious, uh, from where the religious leaders were threatening him, great throngs followed him. And it says he healed them all. Uh, just a cross-reference, parallel text in Mark chapter 3, 7 and 8, it says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So, you have huge, massive crowds following Jesus Christ at this point. And they were coming from all over the place. <clears throat> Look on the map there. Um, you can see they're coming from, from all corners here. Um, way up here from in north, uh, way down here in the south. Uh, they're coming to this area in the area of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, every direction. Crowds are coming. Like I say, you actually heal people like Jesus did. There's going to be a response. And there was. Uh, Stanley Toussaint says, This is the pattern of his ministry until his final and open rejection in chapters 21 to 27. Opposition, withdrawal, continued ministry. Verse 16. You got this kind of, you got this kind of massive following. You can probably just take over if you want to. 
I mean, seriously, <laughs> who's going to stop this? I mean, you've got to realize this was, this was unbelievably massive, this movement. And verse 16 says, Yet, yet he warned them not to make him known. Isn't that one of the strangest statements you read in the Gospels? There is a context to this statement consistent with prophetic messianic prophecy, as we will see. The context was rising hostility on the part of the religious leaders, and so Jesus tells his followers not to make him known with the goal of preventing further escalation of conflict with the Pharisees. Now, if these crowds continued to fan the flames of messianic fever surrounding Jesus, it would only seek... uh, it would only uh, result in exacerbating the tensions with the religious leaders. And thus, Jesus sought to de-escalate the tensions. Now, Jesus, while never compromising the truth about himself, did not come looking for trouble or conflict. He came with a very gracious ministry. And in fact, when things became very intense, he backed off. And he did this time and time again. Here's the point, key point in our study this morning. At his first coming, Jesus did not come with a takeover movement, but rather with a movement of appeal, of appeal. This aspect of the Messiah was not clearly understood in Israel. This was not the kind of Messiah they expected. They expected a conquering Messiah to ride in and take over with great force. Jesus didn't come on the scene that way. We know from John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But Matthew continues, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled. Jesus is operating the way he was that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. This behavior of withdrawing was not what the average Jew expected out of the Messiah. Yet, as shown, it was in perfect harmony with Messianic prophecy as given by Isaiah 700 years earlier. The Jews expected, as I say, when the Messiah came, he would, he would come blowing the opposition away. They expected him to come as a conquering king. I mean, after all, he's the son of David, right? And what kind of a man was David? What kind of a king was David? He was a man of war. They expected him to come as a conquering king, forcefully having his way with his enemies. So when Christ came in a very gracious and non-provocative manner, wanting to avoid trouble, that didn't make sense to how they envisioned how the Messiah would come. Now, the Jews did see certain Messianic texts in the Old Testament that spoke of a humble, suffering Messiah. That's true. But they also saw Messianic texts emphasizing a strong, ruling Messiah. And which one of them, do you suppose, got most of the attention? The suffering Messiah or the reigning Messiah? Well, the reigning Messiah, of course. Which Messiah do you want to follow? So this withdrawing demeanor that says, don't make me known, don't don't make me known, 
was hard for them to understand. It didn't fit their profile of the coming Messiah. After all, they were looking for political deliverance from Rome. And this would require a victorious, conquering Messiah. Yes, they understood that in bringing in the kingdom, the Messiah would heal. But they also expected for him to forcefully set up his kingdom. And Jesus just didn't seem to fit this strong, victorious idea of the coming Messiah. Now, what the Jews failed to see and fail to this day to see is that there are not two messiahs, but two separate comings of one messiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you understand this, the prophetic scriptures all harmonize and fit perfectly together around the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, here they are in the Old Testament, people such as Isaiah. And the prophecy, he saw prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, and he saw prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. But they really didn't see this valley called the church age, which has been going on for about 2,000 years. So they saw this peak, the first coming of Christ. Yeah, the suffering Messiah. They saw the second peak, the coming of the Messiah. But you know what? They put all of that together. They didn't see two comings. And so they were confused. The non-provocative ministry of Christ is then shown to be completely consistent with Messianic prophecy as seen in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, which is now quoted by Matthew loosely in chapter 12 here, verses 18 through 21. There are four key Messianic servant passages in Isaiah. And they are very key as far as properly understanding the Messiah. Descriptions of the Messiah. Messiah as servant uh, in the servant songs. The lengthiest description of the Messiah as servant is in Isaiah. Most clearly drawn in four passages called the servant songs. And you recall, you probably don't recall, but I did teach through Isaiah verse by verse some time ago. And we looked at these at great length. But they are found in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then Isaiah 52, 13, which really should be a part of chapter 53. I don't know who you know, divided those chapters up, but they made a little mistake there. But uh, that, that whole section goes together. Uh, called by Polycarp, early church father, bishop of the ancient Greek city of Smyrna, uh, martyred by Rome, the golden passional of the Old Testament. A prophecy of Jesus' passion. And so what do we see here? Uh, Matthew 12, 18 continues. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. This is a quote of Isaiah 42, 1. Now the early Jewish scribes before the time of Christ would consistently reference the Isaiah servant passages as referring to the Messiah. They very consistently early did that. The Jewish scribes say, yeah, this is talking about the future Messiah. However, after the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they came to the position that all the servant passages in Isaiah referred to Israel. Israel is the, the suffering servant. 
Now, it's somewhat confusing because both Israel and the Messiah in various places are called God's servant. A couple of uh, slides here. This is from Merle Unger. He says, the connection between the servant, the nation of Israel, and the servant, the person, the Messiah, has frequently been compared to a pyramid. With the base being the whole nation, the middle section being Israel, not merely after the flesh, but after the spirit, and the summit being the person of the Messiah arising out of Israel. So in terms of this this, uh, idea of servant, there is a number of uh, aspects to it. Uh, note here, <clears throat> progressive development of the, of the servant theme. Uh, the whole nation of Israel, yeah, one aspect of that, that's true. And then the faithful remnant of Israel, who are, are true believers. And then the ideal Israelite, the, the representative, the ultimate representative uh, of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. <clears throat> so clearly there is a close link in the servant motif regarding Israel and the Messiah, and yet there are also clear distinctions. The New Testament consistently applies the Messianic servant passages to Jesus. Yes, Israel is God's servant too, but the servant in view here is clearly and uniquely the Messiah. Now, as is common in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4 intermingles aspects of Messiah's first coming with that of his second coming. And verse 1 characterizes his calling and the outcome of his mission. When God says, whom I have chosen, that is translated as my elect one in Isaiah 42.1. The word elect simply means chosen. The Messiah is God's special chosen one. That's the idea of, of Christ, by the way, which means anointed one. Messiah, Messiah Old Testament, Christ uh, Greek New Testament, same word, means uh, anointed one with the idea of chosen one, special chosen one. He is uniquely God's servant called by God, my servant. He is uniquely chosen by God the Father to serve as the God-ordained Messiah. <clears throat> Note the explanation after the word, behold. This is intensive. God wants this to get our attention. This is worthy of high-definition attention because it's all important. This is the main attraction of the whole of the Scripture. This is about the most important person in history, the key figure in all the Bible, God's chosen Messiah. He is the Father's beloved in whom his soul is well-pleased. He pleases God supremely because he is the perfect servant. How do you display the ultimate servant? by the ultimate obedience in going to the cross. His obedience was 100% all the time. He did nothing but please the Father in his role of humility. As Jesus said in John 8, 29, quote, I always do those things that please him. There was no exception. He never sinned. The Father's delight in his servant was expressly stated at his baptism and then again at the Mount of Transfiguration. And he is the one upon whom God uniquely put his spirit. The spirit came upon Jesus at the time of his baptism in the form of a dove. John 3.34 says God gave him the spirit without measure, meaning he was fully endowed with the spirit's power and fully controlled by the spirit in full measure. There was never a gap. Now, you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit as believers, but there's gaps, right? There's times we're not really walking in the spirit. 
with Jesus, that was never the case. Fully controlled by the Spirit at every step at all times. And note this. Uh, note the Trinity is represented here in, in Matthew twelve eighteen. just as a footnote here, uh, which is really a quote of Isaiah 42, 1. And there are echoes of the Trinity uh, found in at least four places in Isaiah. Uh, note this, uh, Isaiah 42, uh, 1, my servant, and I, God the Father, my servant, Jesus, and my spirit, an echo of the Trinity. And then in forty-eight sixteen, the Lord God, I, and his spirit. 61, 1, the Lord, me, the spirit of the Lord God. And then in 63, 7 through 10, the Lord, the angel of his presence, the angel of the Lord, uh, Jesus Christ, and then his Holy Spirit. But here's the point again. The key point in context is that this one prophesied back here in Isaiah, this kind of Messiah being presented was God-ordained. This is God's Messiah. This is the kind of ministry that he would have. He would come as God's servant. And he would come not forcefully, but with gentleness and graciousness. With the message of appeal. It's not a movement of force, but a movement of appeal. Appealing to the hearts of people. Repent and come. Christ invites, come to me, you who labor and are heavy. I'll give you rest. It's a movement of appeal, not force. Note that here in this introductory statement of the servant songs from Isaiah, as quoted here by Matthew, that the Messiah would declare justice to the Gentiles. Now, the sense of justice is that which is right or righteousness. The Messiah comes declaring how people can be right with God through the Messiah. And how that in his kingdom, Messiah will make all things right. And we're looking forward to that. This is the ultimate message of the prophets. The Messiah comes and he makes everything right. And this has application for the Gentiles. Yes, he is going to ultimately set the Gentiles right and everyone else. The sense here is that Messiah does not come with a political agenda but rather comes with a message of rightness that even has application for the Gentiles. William MacDonald, his ministry would reach beyond the confines of Israel. He would declare justice to the Gentiles. This latter note becomes more dominant as Israel's no grows louder. Yes, as the Messiah, he comes to straighten out the Gentiles, as the Jews expected but not initially as they expected. There's a first coming emphasis and there's a second coming emphasis. First coming emphasis, verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the straits. The point here is that the Messiah would not come as expected, as the rabbis commonly taught. He would not come with a political or military agenda. Not the first time. Not the first time. 
They should have read more carefully as Jesus repeatedly said to them, Have you not read? The Messiah would not come as a revolutionary. He was not looking to take over in a hostile or military fashion. He was not looking for a fight. He would not be a rabble-rouser in the streets stirring up revolutionaries to follow him. He wasn't leading a mob to riot and take over. And he could have done that. I mean, he had the masses following him. Hey, this is the time. Let's do it. This is our moment. No, 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 no. It's not in keeping with the prophecies. The prophecy was clear. Isaiah 42, verse 2. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the straight. The picture here is of a gentle and humble messianic figure. He was not forcing things in a fleshy manner. His quiet withdrawal in the face of hostility was in perfect keeping with the prophetic portrayal of the Messiah. Contrary to general expectations, the Messiah was not to come as a warrior king. Not the first time. And it is for this reason that Jesus did not want the fact of his Messiahship published or promoted in a wrong way. The general populace didn't get it, including the multitudes that were currently following him. His was not a way of revolution commonly followed by other kings. The Messiah's mission at his first coming was a nonviolent mission. He came in a gentle and gracious manner. Ministry of appeal. He did not engage in public haranguing or demagoguery. He came graciously offering the kingdom, not forcing the issue. It's an invitation. Come to me. This was the time of a grace invitation. As John 1.17 says, Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The Messiah came as one gentle and lowly in heart, who ultimately entered Jerusalem in his official presentation to the nation, lowly, quote, lowly and sitting on a donkey, Matthew 21.5. Thus his approach and presentation was completely out of sync with what the Jewish populace expected. And yet it was in perfect fulfillment of the prophecy as noted in Isaiah 42. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. Now, when he talks about a bruised reed he will not break, a reed is a tall, slender leaf plant of, of the grass family that grows in water or on marshy ground. And uh, so here's a, here's a picture. You see this? <clears throat> this one's kind of bruised, right? It's kind of bruised and battered in the wind. This one still looks pretty good. <laughs> but uh, this, is, this is a bruised reed. A reed is delicate to start with. So a bruised reed is in a very weak position. A bruised reed is wounded. But Christ would not come to totally break it. He came to make it. In other words, the tenor of his ministry would be that he would deal gently and mildly with people. He would not be harsh and rough with the weak. Rather, he would show mercy 
as he told the religious leaders that God desires. Jesus did not show up like a bull in a china closet. No, he invites the wounded and the heavy laden to come to him for rest. And then he says, uh, in, turn, in terms of uh, the flax, and smoking flax he will not quench. Flax threads were commonly used as wicks in oil lamps. The smoking flax wick is one that is about burned out. This represents a person that is down and depressed and ready to lose hope. This person is about burned out. Jesus would not snuff out this person's smoldering wick. He didn't come to blow people away. That's not the Jesus way. He deals gently with people. That's not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. The Messiah did not come in a forceful or harsh manner. He came full of grace. But I want you to see, I want you to see that this applies only, only to his first advent. Note that little word till or until in the middle of verse 20. He didn't break people or snuff them out at his first coming. Rather, he gave grace. He gave space. He gave evidence of who he was with the grace invitation to believe on him. That's what went forth far and wide. This was not a time for harsh judgment. It was the time for invitation, the time for appeal. And Christ knew it all along. Early in his ministry, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And you know the hometown folks, they're the roughest. As he went into the synagogue there, they presented him a scroll. And he turned to the Messianic passage in Isaiah chapter 61. And here's what happened. Isaiah chapter 4, he began to read there from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were, were fixed on him. Can you imagine God reading the word of God? <laughs> this is what we have here. Uh, no wonder the attention was fixed. I mean, I'd just love to hear him read it. It's amazing. And it's about him. And he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what is amazing is that if you turn back to Isaiah 61 from where he was reading and applying it to himself, you will find that he stopped quoting in mid-sentence. Let's look at it. Isaiah 61. After quoting this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, etc., etc., verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, Christ stopped right here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The door of grace is now open. All of this that he's talking about is about grace, uh, to preach the good tidings, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, etc. All grace. And now is the time. It's the acceptable time to come. 
Christ came to proclaim an acceptable time when people can get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But Christ stopped right at that point, right before it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. It wasn't time for vengeance. It wasn't time for judgment. It wasn't time to snuff out the wick. That relates to his second coming. When he will establish justice on the earth. The first coming was all about the offer of grace. And Christ comes humbly with great mildness and gentleness. The second time he will come forcibly with power and great glory and bring judgment and vengeance on all those rejecting him. You know, following chapter 12 is chapter 13. And Christ gives various parables to help us further understand kingdom truth. And he says in Matthew 13, 30, talking about the wheat and the tares growing together, let both grow together. Don't be stamping out anything. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. We live in that in-between time where both are growing together. There's probably some wheat and tares growing together here this morning. This is the age of grace. Where God says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But I want you to see there is coming a time when things will be different as indicated by the word till. And then at the second coming, he will send forth justice to victory. What is right according to God will then forcibly be brought to bear on the whole world and the Messiah will champion justice and victory. In the end, justice will be victor under Jesus. God's justice will triumph under the Messiah and it will be justice according to God Almighty. And at that time, Jesus will break the world with a rod of iron. You know what? That's different than his first coming. If the world won't respond to his invitation of grace, they will get his rod of iron. If they won't respond to the first coming, they'll get the second coming. Psalm chapter 2. God the Father saying to God the Son, the Messiah, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them. As a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a different feel than the first coming. Same Messiah, different coming. Revelation nineteen fifteen. Now out of his mouth, this is Jesus Christ at his second coming. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is a case, my beloved, of rightly dividing the word of truth. And if you don't make a distinction between Christ's first coming in grace and his second coming in judgment, the scriptures won't make proper sense. The reason the world is getting away, quotes, getting away with chronic blasphemy at the moment 
is purely because of the grace of God. This is the age of grace. The church age is an age of grace. And I'm thankful for grace. I preach the gospel of God's grace. You're all trophies of grace. My fellow Gentiles, ever since Christ came the first time, grace has been extended. It's the good news. It's the good news. Whosoever will can come. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient, is patient, is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The door is open. The door of grace is open, but you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's where we are as far as the order of events. We got Christ's first coming and then his ascension. The church, age of grace, acceptable time, age of grace, introduced by Jesus Christ at his first coming. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. One day the rapture of the church is going to happen. We're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ. Then God begins a process of judgment that comes upon on the world in what is known as the day of the Lord. It's a day of the Lord's authority when he begins to forcibly take back. And there's a forceful feel that was never evident in the first ministry, the first coming of Jesus Christ. But we'll be on display then and we'll come to culmination at Christ's second coming. And then we go into the kingdom over here. We live in the age of grace. It's a ministry of appeal. God's not forcing the issue. If God wants to force the issue, believe me, he'll force it. And he will at the second coming. So I say the church age is often referred to as the age of grace. And when the, when the church age is completed, the wrath of God's judgment will then come upon the world. According to Christ, this will be the worst time in the history of the world as seen in Matthew 24, 21. These are the judgments described in the book of Revelation. How gracious is God not to have brought judgment on the entire world yet at this point? And we all want Jesus to come, right? We're all saying with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. We're looking forward to release. But think about it. Here he is, more than 2,000 years gracious, waiting for more to come. And we keep wondering, how long is he going to wait before judgment falls? And he keeps surprising us by showing the extent of his amazing grace is even longer, is even more. But someday, someday that will come to a halt. There is the till, as we noted. Acts 17, truly these times of ignorance, God overlooked Old Testament. God very patient, overlooking lots of things. But now after the resurrection of Christ... He commands that all men everywhere repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that's Jesus Christ, whom he has ordained, and he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Judgment day is coming. In the meantime, age of grace. Verse 21. 
and in his name Gentiles will trust. I love this verse. My fellow Gentiles slash church. Gentile by background, now the church of Jesus Christ. In his name Gentiles will trust. This is now the second time the Gentiles, sometimes translated as nations here, are mentioned. And God's plan definitely includes the Gentiles. And in context, the sense is that the nation of Israel was rejecting their Messiah, but in contrast, there would be a great response on the part of the Gentiles. Many of them would come to trust or hope in the person of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. What do the Gentiles have to do with the the Jewish Messiah? Well, frankly, everything at this point. When it says in his name, that's, that's his person. We believe in his person, who he is, as well as what he's done for us as as Lord and Savior. Gentiles in saving faith have come to trust in Jesus for who he is as Lord and Savior. We believe in him as our Lord God and as our Savior from sin. And this is what the Jews as a nation failed to do. And yet there was a remnant. God always has a remnant. In John we read, John 1, 11 and 12, he came to his own, came, came to his own people, his own things, and his own did not receive him. By and large, there was, a, uh, there was a remnant. There's always a remnant, as I say. But by and large, the nation of Israel did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Again, there's his name, his person. Now we know from Romans 11, verse 11, that through the conversion of the Gentiles, God's plan is to provoke the Jews to jealousy through the salvation of the Gentiles. This is one case where you should provoke people, the Jews. Be provokers. Indeed, relatively few, very few Jews have come to faith in the age of grace. But guess what? Many Gentiles have come. Is anybody here this morning Jewish by background? Is there anybody represented? Even one? All Gentiles? Wow. Mostly Gentiles. We have a whole church full of you here today. The point is this. This kind of Messiah, as presented in the Old Testament scriptures, presented as coming very graciously the first time, with a ministry of appeal, would be effective. Would be effective. Not so much with the Jews, But many Gentiles would come to trust in him. Has this not proven true? It has. I bring you all to the witness table. You're all here, you Gentiles, by background. What what does the verse say? And in his name, Gentiles will trust. That's you. That's me. This This is the church age. Stanley Toussaint says... The indication of a future ministry to Gentiles is also very important. In the face of rejection by the nation of Israel, Matthew, by Messianic prophecies, prepares his Jewish reader for the proclamation of a universal Savior. The Gentiles shall hope in him. He didn't come just to save the Jews. He's a Savior for the world. And and the Gentiles have come. Now, we wish more would come, still only a remnant for sure. 
But in comparison to the Jews, been a massive response on the part of the Gentiles. The church, both Jew and Gentile, yes, consists of both Jew and Gentile, but mainly Gentiles. So much so that Paul, when referring to the completion of the church, talks, a bit, talks about it as when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What about the Jews? Well, there's more to be done in relationship to the Jews. And there's a few of the Jews in the church. It's both Jew and Gentiles. We see in Ephesians. But mainly Jew, or mainly Gentile, rather. Verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. Now, this man had lots of problems, very severe problems. And it all stems from his chronic issue of being demon-possessed. And the sense is that his position, his uh, plight of being demon-possessed caused him to be blind and mute. He couldn't see and he couldn't talk, which made all communication very difficult. This is an especially difficult case. But note, it was no problem for Jesus. The text simply says Jesus healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. The healing was instantaneous and complete. And there was no refuting it. Even Christ's enemies did not deny it. And verse 23 says, And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be, could this be the son of David? <laughs> They're amazed. Son of David was a common messianic designation, going back to God's promise to David that God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever through his son. But in the Greek, and we don't see this in the English, but in the Greek, there's a fine nuance here. Again, that we don't see in the English translation. And that is the grammar here expects a negative answer. Again, uh, Stanley Toussaint says, it expects a negative answer. They were saying, this can't be the Messiah. Can it? Uh, thus, their inquiry, while indicating a faint possibility of belief indicated that their amazement was primarily in unbelief. They got it that the Messiah would come doing great, unprecedented healing miracles. And indeed, when he comes to usher in the kingdom, prophecy shows that this will be a time of great healing, as seen, for example, in Isaiah 35. But in context, their problem seems to be they thought of David as a warrior king and believed that the son of David would be a great liberator in that same mold. Thus, they struggled with how to understand these unprecedented miracles, such as healing a demon-possessed, blind, and mute man. It seemed like this was the kind of thing that only the Messiah would be able to do, but he just didn't seem like the warrior king Messiah that they were expecting. He didn't fit the, the messianic profile they had been taught to expect. They were amazed, therefore, but skeptical. And into that context, here come their most esteemed religious leaders called the Pharisees. And what, was, what would they weigh in? What would they say? Well, their explanation was so blasphemous as to be unforgivable. As we will see next time, they didn't deny that Christ did this. 
They just claimed he did it by the power of the devil. Now, that is so contrary to everything in the word of God, every, so contrary to everything, that it's un, unforgivable. One of the great proofs for the truth of Jesus being the prophesied Messiah was the very gracious nature of his ministry. He came doing nothing but good and being very gracious and gentle in the process. This is not like the devil. In the Bible, we consistently see the devil doing nothing but that which is deceptive and harmful. He never does anyone any good. What a contrast. The demon or demons, uh, Satan's angels, were responsible for this man in Matthew 12, 22, being blind and mute. That's the devil's work. In contrast, Jesus healed him. That's God's work. Nicodemus was right. We know that you must be from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless, unless God is with them. I mean, that's the right deduction. As the prophecy of Isaiah 61, 1 indicates, Jesus came to set the captives free. And indeed he did. In Acts chapter 10, making a summary statement of Jesus' ministry, Peter says, the word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then in a few verses later, he says to the Gentiles, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. This is the ultimate question. Have you believed in him? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is very clear that God's ways are not our ways. They're infinitely above our ways. And God's ways can only be known by God's revelation. You see, we never figure out God on our own. You know, God doesn't do things the way we think he would do them because he's so much above us. We think like humans because that's the only way we have to think, you know. But he doesn't. No one would expect, no one would expect that the infinite eternal creator would become a man. But he did. The Jews did not expect the Messiah to come in gentleness, but rather as an overwhelming conqueror. They did not expect the son of David to come humbly as a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Rather, they expected him to come as a lion. You know, we sing at Christmas time, right? How should a king come, that, that Christmas carol? Even a child knows the answer, of course. In a coach of gold, with a pure white horse, in the beautiful city, in the prime of the day, and the trumpet should cry, and the crowds make way. But that's not how Jesus came at his first coming. He came in a spirit of great humility, with amazing grace, in meekness and lowliness of heart. He came with a ministry of appeal, not a takeover mission. He came to appeal to the heart. He's got a movement that's internal, not external, winning people. 
through conversion, through being born again, as he says to Nicodemus. He came with conviction, calling people to repentance. It's an internal focus of the heart, not an external movement of riot and revolution. But I would remind us that the first coming is only part of the story. There's a sequel. There's a second coming in which he will come with power and great glory. Where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just as sure, just as sure as the humble, gentle part of the prophetic story was fulfilled to the letter, just as sure will yet be the glory and power part of the story. You see, there's two parts of the story. One Messiah, two comings. First, he comes as a lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, as introduced by John the Baptist. But he is going to return a second time. And this time, he is coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. In his name, in his name, Gentiles will trust. Are you among them? Are you among them? Do you know him? Be ready. Live ready. The whole of redemptive history swirls around this one called Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, fulfilling all of the prophecies related to his first coming, related to his second coming. And the ultimate issue in this time of grace is what will we do with the Messiah? In his name, Gentiles will trust. I hope that you are among them. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close us in prayer.